Pisces is a, it's an interesting sign. Uh, it's the last sign of the zodiac, and it's the sign of endings. And you can also technically be the sign of the beginnings. And what you have, if you understand a circle, and if you get an arc of a circle, and we discussed. Now, this is quite complicated, as you can see, and I'm not going to go into this right now. But what I want you to see is that there's two two arcs that cross each other and they join by a line. In this particular case of my particular card, the line is one of the arms of a swastika. When we finish dealing with the glyphs of all of the signs and the planets, then we'll go and analyse all of my 12 cards. And so we'll get most of our astrological information from that way. So the cards really summarise everything to do with the signs. You know, what's the main things in DK's books, plus a few other revelations of mine that's not in his books. So you get a very a lot of information. So we'll analyse them as there's the next phase of our lecture series. So that should be quite interesting for all of you. We talked about arcs before, and we said that they are part of the circle. They're normally a quarter of a circle, and it implies um, bringing in all of those energies of that particular quadrant. The similar Pisces is fishes, the two, the fishes, right? It's Pisces, the fishes. And so you have the concept of two fishes, one swimming in the waters of sensation, the waters of samsara, which relates to our personality life. And it's quite, quite important for all of you to, when we look around us, we think in terms of physical bodies. Now we have physical bodies, we walk on physical ground, we touch physical objects and all of that. You know, you go to the beach and you jump into water. But esoterically, it's not really the case. Uh, What we look at is the energies, the body of energies. So our, you know, even from the point of view of orthodox science, you know, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Everything is energy. And energy is, is fluid, it's mutable, it's in motion. And so when we think of samsara esoterically, we're really more thinking in terms of the field of energies that you live in, your nadi system, the samskaras that are flowing through your nadi system. Even we use the term the flow of time. And we don't, you know, we can't say the march of time, but it's more a flow, right? And so the, the stream of consciousness, a stream entra is in, in Buddhism, one who first um, enters the stream of enlightenment that begins the path of the Bodhisattva Bhumis. So you, you have to adjust to the fact that samsara is watery, is fluid. And of course, that which sustains samsara of virtually every human being is the emotions. Right, they can't really live without the emotions at this stage of their lives. You know, everything promotes the emotions. And on our path, of course, what we're working towards is the dying to the emotions, the the concept of death, of that which is fluid and watery. Pisces is the end of the cycle of the watery emotions and also the beginning of it, the the very, very beginning of the outpouring of of emotions in in their mediumistic way, in the atavistic way, the the type of waters that, that animals, for instance, reside in, the elementary clairvoyant stage where there's no real mind. So it's the personality vehicle that's the, the lower fish, then the, the upper arc represents the soul, the, the higher fish that's swimming, you know, in, in the waters, if you wish, of, of the ethric, cosmic ethers, what's just under that. 
I can also, when I think of Pisces, I often think in terms of, say, for instance, the waters of the cosmic astral plane compared to the physical world or the what I call the systemic planes that we're residing. What it really is, of course, is two spheres of activity. One sphere which is cosmic or solar, which is the plane of divinity, whatever is that which is the cause of phenomena. And then the other sphere is the phenomenal world, the ever-changing illusional world, which is samsara. So you can see there's two spheres of activity, and one is bound by the ring past knots of your minds, and the other, of course, is the ring past knot of the causal body that is incarnated into or that has produced the appearance of the phenomena. So the line that interrelates these two fissures is that band that joins the two arcs in Pisces. And that's the Antakarana or the Sutatma. Going down is the Sutatma, going up it's the Antakarana. On the whole, that's the main import of this particular symbol. And as I said, it can be implied on a cosmic scale, a logoic scale, where the Asolo Logos projects the Antichrine or the Suratma to planetary Logi, whereas in which case the planetary Logi are the lower fish and the solar Logi is the higher one. And there's a strong relationship also between Pisces and Gemini from the point of view of the duality aspect of it and the energy that comes Gemini is the, the, the adjitium that you go to the gates of the temple in order to learn. As you go through the gates of the temple, you'll learn the relinquishing or the cutting of the bond that ties the lower fish to the higher fish. And you understand that's the way of release, the way of escape from samsara. You literally have to learn to cut that bond and then the fish swims free, free in, in the domain of life. The lower fish, of course, dies. It's a transient, it's immaterial. And then, of course, the higher fish unites to a, a far vaster sphere of activity. And so we go you know, from bondage, in a sense, to bondage, or from freedom to another form of bondage, which, of course, is a, a far vaster form of freedom. That, on the whole, the symbol of Pisces... So we have born activity, and then on page 115 of uh, Esoteric Astrology, renunciation and detachment, and sacrifice and death. This um, concept also of sacrifice and death is quite important for this particular sign. Esoterically and hierarchically, it's ruled by Pluto, the, the lord of death, at the first ray, you know, and by the first ray. And therefore, Pisces is also the sign of the avatar of the redeeming saviour. So the avatar sort of descends from on high, that arc that points upwards and projects the antikrana down into the field of application where the avatar is going to manifest divinity to liberate the, the fishes in bondage to help them severe their ties to the material world, to their concepts. So you can see Pluto brings in this energy of death in Pisces. It's the last of the signs of the zodiac, therefore it's the energy of, of death. What is it that you're dying to? Well, all of your emotional attachments. 
early on, of course, it's all your like, physical plane attachments, your, your, your sexual bonds to whatever, and, you know, so it's desire bonds, emotional bonds, and then later on it's mental concepts. If you can think of Pisces of both death and then liberation, uh, you can get an idea of the potency and the power of this particular sign. And, of course, it's also the beginning on the you know, reverse arc of the genesis of the Swamp of Lona, which poor Hercules has to battle through in order to lift the Hydra in the air and slay it. You can see it, it's both the, the genesis of people's miasmas, uh, and this is, again, Pluto death, uh, because death works both ways. We think of death when we incarnate in our physical bodies. It's death to your spiritual selves. And so as people are busy doing all of those gross forms of activities to, to create karma to you know against their fellow human beings and so forth, well, that's death, is it not? You're slaying the real. You're getting deeper and deeper involved in samsara. So Pisces can start that arc of activity and then... It can bring in the energy, the first ray energy, uh, later on in the cycle to cut the ties to all those things at the beginning you attach to and, and learn through suffering and pain what not to do. So that's the, the, the basic gist of, of the sign Pisces. It's much more complicated, as you saw by my, my card, but we'll go into those um, cards later. The next thing to look at because I, I want you all to understand better than you do just esoteric symbolism, to be able to read symbols more. We started off at the very beginning with looking at the moon, the sun, and then I think Mercury, if you can remember that far back. What we need to do is go through the symbols related to the planets, to the planetary regions. There's a, a number of symbols to do with that. First of all, as I pointed out before, if you look at Mercury and Venus, they're very, very similar. You know, Venus is literally the ank sign. It's, in the ank, what you have is the sphere of life, the circle um, coming out of the tulpas. And with Venus, it's um, coming out of the, the fixed cross, which has one extended arm, which points north from the tul. The tul cross is the, the cross of what I call the Lemurian root race. It's the cross of material plane involvement at the very beginning of conscious awakening. The sphere that that evolves out of it, which is the principle of life, of course, is the consciousness principle, which is then the symbol of Ankh. Is When you're talking about the Tau cross and the Lemurian race, comparison to the Ankh, is the Tau, when looking at the egg, inverted? Should it not be like a straight line down and then a, a um, horizontal line at the bottom? Or is it supposed to look like a T? It looks like a T. The T is the correct way of doing the egg. So the horizontal line is the feminine principle. And that's been pierced by the masculine down into matter. The southern portion of the cross is active, but the northern portion, the, the way of ascent upwards to divinity, has not yet commenced. Mm. Whereas in the Ankh, um, when you add the circle on top of the Tau cross, then you can see divinity is now risen triumphant. And that's what the symbol, why the Egyptians used the symbol of the Ankh 
as a symbol of life. In they don't represent the top part as a circle really, it's more an oval. An oval and a circle are the same. Uh, is oh, okay. I prefer, rather than using a circle on oval, I, I like to use the term, um, the egg. Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at, at a bird's egg, it's, it's a mundane egg, it's the egg of life. Every sphere, as DK sort of points out, has got a slight depression on top. So yeah, it's a circle or a sphere if you want. But anyway, it's the sphere of life that's appearing out of the material world. And there's a lovely symbol, one of the most esoteric symbols of all that in the Egyptian religion is the ankh standing over the tet and the tet and with two hands coming from the ankh. I'll show it to you. So is the tet that thing that looks like an eye? The tet is the thing at the bottom. It looks something like a rook in, in chess pieces. That's one of the, the most important Egyptian symbols. And so there's a whole... It's explained in Budger's book, Egyptian Magic. So if you ever look up Egyptian Magic, you'll find a tet there and, and information there. It's like the scarab beetle. It's another very, very important Egyptian symbol. Now, the tet is the backbone. And so you've got the ankh rising out of the tet uh, with two hands going towards to grab hold of it. And, of course, the Egyptologists have no idea what that means. But for anyone who's got any esoteric insight, the symbol is absolutely, immediately obvious. Super, super obvious. But I imagine that it is all the descent of the spirit into matter because the top part represents the mind or the spirit for me. That's the ankh. It's like that it is, that is the ankh on top, yes, and uh, the anchoring of the spirit into matter. Anyone else with any ideas? Well, it's the four-sided figure mostly, and then the three. Is there three lines above the four-sided figure? Yeah, there's three lines above. Well, a few things come to mind. Those layers remind me of like Jacob's ladder or the ascent of something, ascent That's right. Round. That's right. And the four is the matter, and then you get to the higher subtle. So the levels below the diaphragm. The chakras. Yes, yes, you're going. You're going all very, very well. That's right. Um, so it's the spinal column. So if you look at the way that this, the vertebra are, they are sort of um, also in the form of these four things. That's the, you know, a very, very shorthand way of, of writing the vertebra above the spinal column. And what comes above the spinal column, of course, is the ankh, the symbol of life, which you can look at the head center. But what what it really is symbolizing is the liberation of Kundalini, the process of enlightenment. Above the, the form, the quaternary of the form, comes the line of you know, the, the antakarana that liberates. And then you've got the hand coming down in order to control or master the form. Is it for this reason that the vertical line is not touching the quaternary? Yeah, yeah the vertical line doesn't touch because okay. it's liberated. Us. So it's, it's a composition of uh, a number of different Egyptian symbols. Mm -hmm. So that's the symbol of what we would look at in terms of the yogic process of the arousing of Kundalini, of the awakening of high perceptions, which is the, the circle on top of the ankh. So you've got three principles, the spirit, um, the soul aspect here with the um, hands and the, the, the vertical line, and the matter or the form. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. I thought that the big, the big square down the bottom, it was a bit like Gemini in a sense, 
but being the, the temple of the physical body, and then the three horizontal lines were more like the, the etheric, astral, mental aspects of the personality. And then those That's three right. lines were the, were the three nadis. And I actually thought that the line across the top of the tower was, in a sense, that threshold that the soul is on the other side of. So that the, the circle of the ankh was the soul. And then the three lines with the nadis going down to the personality, like the Irish. Yeah, yeah, that's now. right. What what it's really describing is the planes of perception, the planes of perception on which human beings live and arising out of that. Mm. So there's the the, the quaternary, the form, which are those three lines, or the astral, physical, and mental planes, and then above that is the the, the liberation of the soul rising out of the domain of the mind. And so it's it's a light filled body and. So, for instance, if you look at, say, pictures of Akhenaten with the sun disk around him, and out of out of that sun disk comes myriads of rays of light. Each of them is a hand bearing an ankh, and then the ankh touches. Well, the ankh is the, that which provides nourishment, light, the, the waters of life, which is of the cosmic astral to all the beings, you know, in the universe, technically. So, it's it's quite an important aspect to thing to to understand a little bit more about symbols and to begin to recognize universal symbols symbols that are written you know, of divinity and you know the the language of hierarchy of the lords of shambhala and um when it comes to the signs of the zodiac it's a bit of a composite of course i mean well not the signs of the zodiac we've discussed them but these um signs for the planetary regions now yeah, well, I, I just diverged a little bit from the sign Venus. And Venus is the well, what DK calls the Earth's alter ego, the, the soul aspect of the Earth. Well, all of you know the sign Venus, so I don't need to draw it for you. So you've got the plain cross, which you, by now you understand the four directions, with the circle, in this case, the symbol of the soul, arising above the plain cross. Now, the plain cross is the symbol of the Earth, you know, the way that the symbol of the Earth is the plain cross within a circle. In other words, it's encapsulated within a sphere of activity. And when you take it outside of the circle, then it means it's an, you know, looking at an enlightened principle. So one is bonded within form and the other one is outside of the form. So you get the spirit has risen above form in Venus. We've gone uh, early on with Mercury. Now Mercury is one of the most important of the symbols and most, most interesting and because you've got the the soul aspect rising out of a sphere which has conquered the form. And Mercury's case, what you really have to do there is you're looking at the base of the spine with the cross, uh, or the base of the spine centre, the four petals of the, the Muladhara chakra. And then out of that comes the, um, the next chakra, which is the sacral centre, and from the sacral centre uh, come the Ida and Pingala Nadis. So you get the horns, the two horns of Mercury's, which is really the, the ascent of the serpent power of Ida and Pingala. Anyway, all of you know what that means. And for that reason, you have the god Mercury's, or Hermes in, in the Greek, holds the caduceus staff. And the Caduceus staff is, is this cross with two serpents interwoven around it. Above is, is the sphere of life. Like it's, you know, it's just like the ank with two wings either side instead of the arms and the serpents. And again, if you want the extension of the simple glyph 
that you have for Mercury, what it really is liberating, those two serpents, of course, we know as Ida and Pingala Nadi. And you get them on the, the same serpents, of course, on the Purba. You know, you, you know the daggers, uh, the Tibetan daggers, they're the Purbas. And all yogic arts, whenever you get the serpents and you're looking at that sort of awakening of perception. Of course, the, the Ida and Pingala are samskaras, two different types of qualities of samskaras, samskaras feminine and, and masculine. Whereas Venus, in a sense, is um, it lives on, a, on one little plane above Mercury, <laughs> and the cross in, uh, in Venus's case is literally the activity below the diaphragm, and whereas the circle then is the, the chest cavity or the heart center. So, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to show you or to point out to you, it depends on where you place the symbol, how you interpret it. You know, either you put it into samsara or you put it in the domain of the soul or you put it in the junction between the soul and the spirit. The nature of the interpretation changes. You know, as above, so below. That which is within is also without. And you always have to use that, that adage. So we could apply Venus the symbol or cosmological principles or Mercury the same sort of thing. And so the interpretation changes, but the, the basic principle is the same. So when I'm writing the book, for instance, what I'm doing now with the secret doctrine, I have to think in terms of cosmological, astrological principles. But in order to write about these cosmological and astrological principles, I can also, I have to think what I know about my form. For instance, most of you have heard the term lunar pitri. So they're the elements that, that embody the form of your emotions, your mind, your concrete mind, you know, desire, all of that stuff. So these lunar pitris are the, the pitri means father, so they're the fathers of the form, the lunar nature. Uh, the lunar is psychic, it's they're all the, the three levels, if you want, of samsara that you live in, the three worlds of human livingness, as I call it in my books. So these, these lunar pitris are samskaras. Now, if I'm looking at on a solar level or on a, you know, on a planetary level, you know, from the point of view of a planetary or solar lobus, lunar pitris suddenly become archangels. They become high-level divas. Um, they're still involved in that which is below the diaphragm. But what is below the diaphragm is our um, seven systemic planes, see? Uh, so you've got to begin to translate your your way of interpreting in terms of what I call transmuted correspondences. And so in time, you you will get in one symbol normally these three levels of interpretation, three levels of where each level you have to transmute the your your correspondences, transmute your thinking. Now the moon we we looked at before, and you've got the phases of the moon. And then the sun we looked at for in terms of the sun disk and, and whenever you get the point in the, the center, then you have an established throne of a, of a logos. Um, it can represent, normally it represents the monad or the monadic level. Uh, it can also represent the soul or it can represent any of your chakras. All of your chakras are basically spinning disks with a central point. There's a slight depression, the disc is spinning, and there's the central point. So it's, it's an embodied form. It's empowered with a thinker. And, of course, each cell in your body is similar. It has a nucleus and then um, surrounding protoplasm um, bounded by a, the ring pass knot or the outer skin of the cell. 
So you can see the nucleus, the, the protoplasm, the skin, the three aspects of, of divinity. So it's an embodied sun. I went a little bit into Jupiter last week, and I was talking about uh, at the beginning with the two arcs, and then a bit of a line that, that um, looks like makes it look like the four. Uh, that line that cuts one of the arcs is the Antikrana that's piercing the lower arc, entering into a higher domain. Jupiter is the sign of wisdom. That's what it normally is. It's ruled by the second ray. So you think Jupiter, you think wisdom. The mind... And Mercury is the intuition. The moon is, is the psyche, is the form. It's what's it normally is what I call psychic impression. You think witchcraft and those types of elementary sort of psychic um, projections and you think the moon. And Luna, it's, it's that which um, moves the waters. Therefore, you can think in terms of, you know, for women, menstrual cycles and the tides of the oceans. The sun, of course, is self-explanatory, the soul or the spirit. Early on, when we started this talk, I think I did go into Mars, and we're looking at a, a sphere, right, with an arrow that comes out of it. Now, we know that Mars relates to war and sexual potency and, and things like that. It's, it's energetic, right? It's the warrior. And it's ruled by the sixth ray, therefore it governs the astral plane. So if you're thinking at those sort of levels and that sphere that we're looking at Mars is the sphere of the sacral centre. And virile energy that, that comes out, uh, the arrow that's coming out of that, which is a triune arrow, uh, you can think in terms of the, the three aspects of deity, the three gunas. The gunas in Hindu philosophy is Rajas, Sattva and Tamas. It's quite important also to think in terms of these three gunas. Uh, tamas is uh, inertia. Rajas is kingly. And it's fiery. And sattva, it starts with the word sat, which is the divine. So you got um, spirit, soul, matter. But it's basically one is inert, so it's, you know, tamisic. It's uh, not moving, or it's moving, you know, with lots of friction in spiral, uh, a rotary motion. The other is kingly, it's fire, it's moving, it's, it's the, the seed of consciousness. And then the other is divinity or, or areas, as Riff said enlightenment. It's ablaze with luminosity. So anyway, the Mars is this virile arrow of desire coming out of the sacral centre to reduce relationships of all types, attachments of all types. It's that sort of um, sexual, I'm looking at in terms of the, the normal interpretation of, of this particular sign. They all have, you know, as I said, technically these three levels of interpretation. If I was actually writing my, um, you know, the treatise on mind, which more or less I finished, I would normally be looking at five levels because I normally look in terms of the five Dhyani Buddhas, their qualities, and it's uh, so three levels, uh, really the three lower. You know, I can't really use the lower, but there's uh, with regards to the Dhyani Buddhas of the five, there's um, Varakana and Oksopya as uh, as a higher two. And then there's Amitabharat, Baba and Amogasiddhi as a lower three. And the lower three, I mean that they embody the three planes and they all govern the qualities of the development of wisdom in the three planes of human livingness. And so these three planes uh, is what we normally are looking at with regards to Trinity. But it's always good to look for 
five qualities and sometimes the seven to relate to the seven rays, so three, five, seven. When you're interpreting the symbols, symbolism, you're normally looking at those things. And whenever there's four, like at the bottom of the um, of that tet column, there's four points, that's the quaternary of, of matter. Above that is the, the triplicity. So you get four plus three, which makes the seven. See, so you get all seven principles involved just in the tet. If you can remember what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the seven. The four plus yeah. the three four makes three. the seven. And that's, you can quite clearly see, the esotericism um, well in there. So in time, all of you will begin to look at symbols and start counting points and lines, you know. So once you get seven or, or four plus three, then it's just so obvious. If it's going downwards, of course, it's the four cosmic ethers and the three planes of, of human livingness. And if it's going up, <coughs> it's the, the four aspects of the quaternary of the human form um, and then the three aspects of divinity. Or, or the three petals and the groups petals of the soul, the three higher planes, and normally, which is um, Eddy, Anapadaka, and uh, Atma, and then there's the mirror, which reflects the three into the four, and the fourth is a bondage that the higher three into the lower four, and you get then the seal of Solomon, which makes the six <laughs> with a central point. Okay, so you get an idea what I'm trying to, to get you to think of. As esotericists, you're looking at what caused the enlightened ones that originated these symbols. Of course, with modern human beings, I'll give you an idea, for instance. Now, the the constellations in the night sky, you know, like Orion, Pictus, Sculptor, there's 88 of these these constellations. Now, there's um, a whole bunch of them. For the Northern Hemisphere. Now, when the constellations were first named, and we, we take on the whole the, the Greek names for them, the Greek mythology for you know the constellations, for instance, the Pleiades, etc. These are all, all. Now, when you think about it, those constellations therefore were named with a group of people that only knew the Northern Hemisphere. The enlightened beings that gave the names, and when they gave the names, they were revealing, as I said before, a Shambhalic book, right? It's actually a book that can be read in, in Shambhala as to the lives of the great beings that are the stars and the constellations and the way they're evolving. So it's a, quite a fascinating book when you begin to read it. But um, here's what I'm getting to. When you get to the Southern Hemisphere, well, we know that the Southern Hemisphere was... Discovered when? With the first Dutch explorers, Portuguese explorers, you know, Vasco da Gama. Yeah, was the first one to circumnavigate the the Earth. Uh, Yeah, only going back 500 years. So then you get um, a new bunch of constellations were discovered. For instance, the Crux Australis, the Southern Cross, which um, is on our Australian flag. Now, all of a sudden, who named them? (laughs) <laughs> you know, but what you find is that those beings that actually discovered the original explorers or the, the people that actually penned the names of those southern constellations actually were given the thoughts to give those names and to draw up the constellations in the way they do by hierarchy. Um, hierarchy made sure that those names are also part of the book, the symbolic book. 
so there's not a discrepancy. The Southern Cross is a very, very esoteric symbol. As you know, and we're talking about the cross, Crocs you know, and Sata. And so this particular cross is governed by the fourth ray. Anyway, we will go into cosmology one day. Generally, that's what, what the crosses do anyway. Okay, so what I'm trying to get to is that even though um, some things are discovered later on in human history, it does not necessarily mean that it's devoid of esoteric symbolism. Normally, hierarchy has worked out that that particular disciple that um, has discovered that particular um, aspect of divinity, for instance, Saturn, after Saturn you get what? Neptune, you know, Uranus, Pluto. Pluto is a problem. Uranus is a problem. Neptune is great, esoterically. <laughs> it's their disciples that have discovered these things, and so hierarchy was able to impress them to disciples to use esoteric names or esoteric principles. I get the same problem, for instance, uh, in the Revelation of St. John. When I'm interpreting the Revelation, I know quite well the numerical code. Now, the numerical code in the Revelation of St. John works great. It's absolutely flawless. But here's the, here's the twist. The words that I'm using in the Revelation of St. John, uh, the present Bible, is not the same words that were in the Bible of 1611. In the Bible of 1611, we have a different story, yes? The old English language had lots of other letters to it. Like, I can't remember any of their words, but you know what I'm getting to. Um, they'll have extra E's and EA's and double F's uh, and, and things like that, which we don't use now. There's a lot of letters being dropped. And I know that the numerical code was actually invented then by Francis Bacon, who was Master R. Uh, he's the one who incorporated it. So, but later on, uh, some initiate had to come to make sure that the new rendering of the words um, is esoterically correct. But what I think now is that Francis Bacon already had the evolution of the language in his head when he penned all that. Just to give you an idea of the way I have to think that when I'm looking at things, and the way you'll think more as you become more esoterically inclined. Uh, you have to think the way of enlightened beings, the way that the masters actually think. With their eye, you're, you're looking at, at a planned stream of revelation of information to humanity via disciples. And so there are initiates that incarnate, that revealers of hierarchy for humanity, even though those initiates may not understand that that's what they are. And so they, they convey correct terminology, and the esoteric doctrine normally is presented that way, even though we have atheistic or materialistic <laughs> thinking people that may be, you know, like Vasco de Gama or whoever, that may discover things. And those early, early navigators, of course, they had to really look at the night sky because that's the way they traveled. They didn't, you know, to stop them from getting lost. They actually had to sort of um, navigate by the stars. A divergence, and, but it gives you a good, good background to, to, to symbolism. We'll go on to Saturn. We've done Mars. And basically the glyph of Saturn. So what you have is what? Uh, the Tau Cross, yes? It stands, there's a wavy line 
which represents moving energy or spiral motion at the bottom of a toll cross. We've gone into the toll and we, we've looked at the fact that this particular toll is, um, again, with the southern arm, which is descent into matter, implied, and from that comes mm, spiral motion, or literally two arcs. It's a full version of the yin-yang, right? So one is thinking about this sign, one says, ah, now it's at the very bottom of the descent of incarnation, therefore this toll is not toll that is the toll, for instance, associated with the fall of Adam and Eve. It's actually a higher toll. That's a toll that, say, uh, descends from, in this particular case, the vertical line could be the junction between cosmic astral plane and the cosmic dense physical, right? And there you have the feminine principle that is impregnated with the masculine line going down into the cosmic dense substance, which are our seven planes of perception. And it reaches the bottom of what it can possibly reach to, and from that then comes uh, the spiral motion that sets matter form into activity. This then gives you an idea of the reason why Saturn is the lord of karma. The bottom descent, literally in this particular case, is Atma, the third plane of perception. And from Atma then comes the moving samskaras. Now, all of you know what a samskara is, I hope, by now. The moving samskaras that cause the appearance of phenomena, which equates with the manifestation of karma, right? It's this moving energy that, as energy moves, it does work of some sort, right? It moves things, it does something. That particular whatever it does is the creation of karma. That's one way of looking at energy, is it not? There's only two things that energy can do. One is create karma, or two is resolve karma. And for Saturn, it's particular both ways. It works at the creation of karma, and then you go up the spiral cyclic motion of its bottom arm, which symbolizes the the generation of time to travel up the bottom portion of this cosmic toll cross to eventually uh, escape and of course technically on top of Saturn you would have eventually the ank sign you know, the, the sphere appearing so it's lord of time and so with the concept of time you get an idea that time is what creates karma the resolution of time is what fixes up karma so the cyclic motion is both the generation and then the resolution of the karma which Saturn wields or, or rules. And to deal with Jupiter, who was sleeping? I've done Jupiter. Well, with Jupiter, because I did it before, remember, the, the first... Remember, it's one descending arc, which faces mm. probably on the western sort of side of the zodiac, and then which is outward into the, the field of activity. It's the... And then the bottom arc with an antichrona piercing it. You're, you're going out of form space into the higher domain, um, symbolised by the upper arc. And the upper arc, as I said, Jupiter is the sign of wisdom. Okay, now Neptune is the trident wielded by the god of waters. Now Neptune, of course, is a planet that was discovered recently. It's, you know, we've been, you know, I forget when, 1933 or whatever. Um, so it's not one of the planets that was known to the ancients. 
but they, they got it right. And one of the reasons why I think why they, they used Neptune, because when it looks through the telescope, it, it's a, a green, a greeny sort of planet, and so it looks like water. And so they got it right. So Neptune actually is the god of waters. It governs the watery principle Esoterically, it's ruled by the sixth ray. It's that which rules the waters, of course, with the trident. The trident is obvious. It's got the three prongs. We have the major central prong, and the central prong is is Shushumna Nadi with the Ida and Pingala uh, manifesting in in their triplicity with a little cross there symbolizing the the fixed cross. And that which um, pours, that which comes out of the fixed cross to rule the waters the three prongs of the central spinal column that's awakened. So this is the esoteric sixth ray, whereas Mars rules the sixth ray exoterically. Mars is the field of desire and all of that, and Neptune is the control of, of all of those things, all the things to do with the waters. And uh, so if you see it in your natal chart, you're looking at that, which relates to the mastery or the eventual mastery of the waters. Of course, it normally means battles to overcome. Uranus is, uh, again, another one of those signs which was discovered recently. This is unfortunately one of those signs that's there in green. One of those signs that is not necessarily correct, but one can look at it uh, esoterically also. And the person who discovered Uranus was um, Sir William Herschel. I think it's in 17, whatever, 1733 or whatever it was. And so what they've got is the line of the Antikrana moving out of the sphere of sensation. And on top of that is the H for Herschel. Is Uranus um, a a god's name? Like, what's the name come from? Uranus, it's the Greek god. Mm. It's the Greek god of, of universal time. He was castrated by his son Zeus, who was then created, formed time, empirical time. So if you if you get your Robert Graves and you type, or you get your Google, which is the <laughs> modern way of doing it, I suppose, and you type in Uranus, you get the whole myth. But um, so it's the waters of space symbolizing universal time out of which the world egg came. It's got to do with Uranus and Rhea. The symbolism has got to do with um, the formation of time and Jupiter, Saturn. Saturn is, of course, the king of the gods. So what you're saying with this symbol then is we kind of ignore the H bit and we're just looking at the Antikorana and the sphere? Well, in a sense, you can. Another way of looking at it is that you've got still the triplicity. If you're looking at the H and the, the line, the undercrana going down, you still have three energies. Yeah, three energies united by a common bond. So you've got that common bond. So if you take away the two downward lines of the H, then you've still got the tail cross. No. There's still the tail cross moving out of the sphere of sensation, right? And then out of the tail cross grows the two lines of the island Pingala Nadi. You can extrapolate. It's not quite uh, blasé. Um, there is, even, even though they use the hate of, of Herschel, you still can get your symbolism. What you've got with all of these angles uh, with regards to this H is the symbol of the mind. 
literally it's the work of the cosmic mind impacting upon substance, the sphere of activity. And that's in many ways Uranus. Uranus is the seventh ray. It's governed by the seventh ray. And so it's all seven ray energies. And if you join up this H bottom and top, you get the nice square, right? It's technically a square coming out of the the circle of activity. And within the circle, you can quickly visualize the, the triangle making a full seven. But Uranus has been associated with intuition, no? No, not in not in our philosophy. Oh. Mercury, oh. the Mercury is intuition. Mercury is the messenger of the gods. Is what intuition is. Uranus is the seventh ray. It, it's um, the planet of occultism, magic. And, you know, the, the color is violet. You know, where Saturn is the the cycle of time and Neptune is the waters. Uh, Uranus is occultism. So if you think of the old the, the old magicians, the, the order of the Golden Dawn, etc., Alistair Crowley, all of those types of people, then you think of that type of magic is Uranus. But the higher aspect of it is the seventh ray and the new age, you know, all seven rays come to be mastered in that sphere of activity which is what Uranus produces. But when you think of this, as I said, it's that square. It's the aspect of the mind of Herschel, of the materialists that compose this sign. Cosmically speaking, the, the seventh ray is literally all of the forces that are contained within the square of matter, right? It's the concretion of the first ray, of, of the energy of divinity, of the mind of God. And so that's what the seventh ray is. It's concretion is the concretion of divinity. In it's matter. almost like the inverted ink. Yes, that's a good, good, good description of it. As I said, even though it's, it has that problem of so well, Herschel. Now, Pluto is a, another problem. Because it was discovered in 1930, um, there's often there's different ways. And one way it is this type of P thing. In his um, book, says the proper way of Pluto is the arrow pointing up. Yeah, that's from DK. So average astrologers don't notice. Rather than using all of these exoteric signs, which um, you know, astrologers even haven't figured out which what to use for Pluto, they're still trying to work out the qualities of Pluto. That's average astrologers because it was discovered so late and it's so, so far away. Because it's so far away, you know, in the outer ridges of the solar system and moves so slowly, then, you know, exceedingly slow mover, therefore they equate it with death, and correctly so. It's the lord of death. It's the, the first ray. What decay with the arrow pointing upwards, of course, it's the Antikrana mastering samsara, the cross, the fixed cross, and then projecting the three lines of the, the implicit triune energy of this particular earlier sign, which is Neptune, that particular. So it's the, the line, the central line of Neptune going up, which then is Pluto. So it's just the arrow that's fired upwards. And the arrow could technically also, um, though we didn't mention it, it's also be fired downwards into materialism. To, to conquer form space. If it's fired downwards, it can become a dark brotherhood, fought for. Whereas fire it upwards, 
becomes a white brotherhood, a centre of liberation. So Pluto is first ray and Gemini is death. It's the, as I said, the esoteric and also hierarchical ruler of Pisces, which is the last sign.